0: Hey, everyone. It's Nico here. Did you know that So To Speak has a newsletter? Well, we do. And if you go to to sotospeakpodcast.com right now, you can sign up for it. We'll send you an email every time a new episode is released, and occasionally we'll clue you in to exclusive updates and giveaways. So head over to to sotospeakpodcast.com, enter your email address into the box at the top of the page, and never miss an episode. It's super simple. You can't mess it up. Now on to the show.
1: Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're
0: listening to So to Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, we are heading across the pond. We're going to London, England, and our guest is Brendan O'Neill. Brendan is a columnist for The Big Issue in London and for The Australian in Sydney. He also blogs for The Daily Telegraph and writes for The Spectator. Most notably, however, Brendan is the editor of a fascinating British publication called Spiked. Launched in 2001 as Britain's first online-only current affairs magazine, Spiked calls itself a metaphorical missile against misanthropy. Spiked has one of the uh, more amusing and creative mission statements I have ever had occasion to stumble upon. Most mission statements, I think, are pretty bland and boring, but Spiked's is not, so I'm going to read it in full. Spiked says it's the publication that puts the case for human endeavor, intellectual risk-taking, exploration, excellence in learning and art, and freedom of speech with no ifs and buts against the myriad miserablists who would seek to wrap humans in red tape, dampen down our daring, restrain our thoughts, and police our speech. Spiked, they put forth, is a fan of reason, liberty, progress, economic growth, choice, conviction, and thought experiments about the future. And they say that they're not so big on eco miserabilism identikit, politicians, nostalgia, dumbing down, and determinism. Spiked staff say they echo St. Simon, who said that the Golden Age, which a blind tradition has always placed in the past, is really in front of us. Spiked is all about laying the ground for, and having a pop at, the enemies of that still-to-come golden age for humankind. Brendan O'Neill, our guest today, as the fearless leader of Spiked and a writer for many other publications, can be seen as a sort of controversial figure overseas, mostly because he has no problem challenging prevailing cultural dogma. I caught up with Brendan over the phone this past Sunday morning to chat about the challenges to freedom of speech overseas. And to ask him about his experiences as a news editor in an environment that isn't as protective of a free press as the one most of us here in the United States get to experience. So let's dive into our conversation. So, Brendan O'Neill, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So, in the introduction, I introduced Spike, of course, which is a England-based publication. How would you describe what Spike does?
1: I would describe spike well the basic description is that spike is a current affairs magazine that publishes every day um but the broader philosophical description i suppose is that spike is a pro enlightenment pro-freedom uh quite radically pro-enlightenment quite radically pro-freedom magazine which really stands up for humanity against misanthropy against censorship Against what we describe to be the very downbeat feeling of our times, so it's a it's a radical humanist publication which, as you say, is based in England but speaks to the world. Um, so that's how I would describe Spike.
0: How would so Spike is somewhat controversial uh, in England, I would say. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, you know, we're we're of course at fire big f- fans of what everything that you do over there to to fight censorship. How do you think some of your um, Ideological opponents would describe Spiked, and and how is that? Why is that misinterpreted?
1: Well, I think some people are confused by Spiked, and they're not sure. Lots of people are confused as to whether we are right wing or or left wing. That's one of the key confusions. Lots of people on the left think that we are on the right. Um, And when I speak to American left leaning liberals, I know that they have a similar experience where it's presumed these days that if you're interested in freedom and if you think freedom is actually one of the most important things in a civilized society if not in fact the most important thing there's this instant assumption that you must come from the right um i was on i did a big radio interview a few years ago um called what is it to be human it was on bbc radio 2 and the presenter said to me so you've now shifted to the right and i said no i haven't and he said so why do you talk about freedom all the time and I find that very interesting because I think one of the key things that's happened in the West over the past 20 or 30 years is that the left has abandoned the the language of liberation. It has abandoned the ideal of freedom. All the things that the left used to argue for very passionately, including freedom of speech, the freedom of experimentation, the right of people to live as they pleased without constantly being told off, the left has slightly vacated that field which means that the right has been able to co-opt it and present itself as the uh, remaining guardian of freedom. So I think that's the key thing that's happened. That's one of the big important shifts in recent years. And as a consequence of that, a magazine like Spike, which conceives of itself as left libertarian, is often misunderstood as being right-wing.
0: And Spike grew out of a previous publication called Living Marxism. I I I think it was renamed in the 90s L.M., Can you talk a little bit about that publication and its sort of relationship with Spiked ideologically?
1: Yes. So um, I worked for Living Marxism in the late 1990s. And um, Living Marxism originally started life in the late 1980s as a left-wing magazine. It was published by the Revolutionary Communist Party which was a small radical very intellectual party um based in Britain uh, as its name suggests it was a communist party living marxism was its monthly magazine and it was uh, a marxist magazine that was also which was very interested in cleaving to and promoting what it understood to be the true and radical ideas of marxism which included in fact the idea of liberation, people being liberated from poverty and liberated from officials' diktats and uh, being allowed to live as fruitful and free and, and comfortable a life as possible. Um, and Liver Marxism published for about 10 years or so and then eventually it was closed down in a pretty notorious libel trial in the late 1990s. And it's out of the ashes of living Marxism. It's out of the closure of living Marxism that Spiked emerges. So Spiked was developed by the team, the editorial team, behind living Marxism.
0: I want to talk about Marx a little bit, um, because in the West we have a very negative uh, conception of Marx and his writing. But I I, I met with you earlier this year And you were talking about how Marx actually in his early writings was a huge defender of freedom of speech and freedom of the press. I I pulled a quote from the Internet here uh, in which he says, You marvel at the delightful diversity, the inexhaustible riches of nature. You do not ask the rose to smell like a violet, but the richest of all, the mind is supposed to exist in only a single manner. Um, Pretty strong uh, endorsement of free and diverse minds there.
1: Absolutely. I think... Um, You know, if you look back to the early Marx, if you look back to his writing when he was in his 20s, when he was very young, he wrote a series of articles and and essays defending freedom of the press, which at that time was under attack in various ways in Europe. And, you know, defending the right of people to publish pamphlets and to distribute pamphlets and to to write in public what they felt to be true, what their political beliefs were, and so on. He was a, a great and passionate defender of freedom of the press. People are always surprised when they hear this, because, you know, fairly understandably, because of what the left became, particularly in the late, the mid to the late 20th century, with the rise of Stalinism, and and the left started to be presumed to be a very pro-state, anti-individual thing, and to a large extent, that is what it did become. So people have this fairly understandable uh, view of the left as instinctively authoritarian, but it was not always like that. The left in the 1800s through to the early 1900s, I would say, was a fairly radical humanist movement, which trusted in ordinary people both to be able to understand the world without needing to have certain parts of it censored to protect them from being offended, and also to be able to govern their own lives, and in fact to govern their own society. So the left was driven by that profound trust in ordinary people to be able to run their lives and, and run the world around them. And I think that's what's missing from the left today. So if you fast forward to uh, the 21st century, the left is very pro-state. It is very pro-censorship in some uh, worrying ways. Um, it is often at the forefront of arguing for new forms of censorship to protect minority groups and women in particular from ever feeling offended. So The left has shifted quite radically, but if you go back to its earliest expressions, there was a really positive humanist liberal component to that, which is the kind of thing that Spiked is interested in in recovering and restating in a new way.
0: I want to talk a little bit about your intellectual development, because you said you started writing about these issues in the late 80s, early 90s. What got you interested in these issues of free expression?
1: Well, for me, I, I started writing around the mid-90s. In fact, mid-90s, I was okay. too young to do so in the, in the late 80s when I was still at school. Um, it was in the mid-1990s, and I think one of the things that got me interested in it was the experience of visiting various campuses um, in the UK and realising that the kind of censorship that we at Spike talk about a lot and which you at Fire talk about a lot had already started taking hold back then i mean you guys will know this from the american experience where the kind of censorship we're seeing today is in some ways just in a more extreme version of the kind of censorship that's been taken hold on campuses from the late 80s and the early 90s onwards so um back in the 1990s i remember the, the national union of students which is the national body in the in britain that represents supposedly represents all students was already enforcing no-platform policies, which meant that certain speakers were denied platforms at campuses. In, in essence, they were banned from campuses, and that included um, neo-fascists, far-right organizations, Zionists, um, hard-right conservative politicians, and in some cases Christian fundamentalists. Those were the, the, the main people who were being banned in the mid-1990s. And the argument that I made, and which other people made at the time, was that if you ban these people, if you, if you accept the censorship of these people, then it's going to inevitably spread and spread and spread to other groups of people who you might actually like, because you've instantly conceded on the principle of freedom of speech. And once you concede on the very principle, then the door is wide open to new forms of censorship, including against yourself. And that is exactly what has happened on UK campuses. That that seed of, of no platform has grown and grown and grown so that we now have a situation today where it's not only neo-fascists and hard-right people who are being banned. It's also feminists, it's secularists who are uh, presumed to upset uh, Muslims, it's comedians, it's uh, rappers, all sorts of people. So... The experience in Britain, which is the experience through which I became interested in these issues and first started writing about them, is precisely that experience that as soon as you give an inch on freedom of speech, they will take a mile. And I think that's the lesson people need to learn.
0: How have the arguments in favor of censorship, particularly on campus, but I'm willing to venture off campus here as well, changed from the mid-90s to today? Because in... The mid 90s, at least in the United States, there seemed to be this emphasis on censorship in order to support, um, you know, what are perceived to be oppressed minorities. Uh, You still see that to an extent today here in the United States, but you also see this, the medicalization of censorship in a certain way, like we are not strong enough um, to live in a society where free speech is protected. How How do you see it in the UK?
1: Yes, there's, uh, I think it's a similar dynamic. You know, I think in the past we had political censorship and religious censorship, not simply on campus, but in society at large. Those were the two main forms of censorship and, of course, artistic censorship. So um, the powers that be would um, clamp down on political views that they thought were dangerous or would punish people who were blasphemous against particular religious ideas or who produced art or literature that they thought was repulsive or obscene and so on. So those were the the key forms of censorship. What we have now, I think, uh, those kinds of censorship have, to a certain extent, fallen out of favor and would, I think, prove quite controversial. Even today, they might prove quite controversial, even though we live in fairly censorious times. But they've been replaced with something which in many ways is worse, which is therapeutic censorship, which is censorship designed not to protect a political ideal or to protect a religious figure but to protect any individual who claims to have felt harmed or damaged by words or images that he or she has seen so in essence everyone now has a a personal blasphemy law protecting them from offense if they want it you know we're all all like little Jesuses now who presume that we have the right to be force-fielded against things that offend our way of life and that's the kind of censorship that has really spread on campuses here. It's therapeutic censorship, whereas there is this presumption of vulnerability on the part of young people in particular, um, many of whom embrace that idea of vulnerability, it must be said. There's this kind of extreme psychic vulnerability where it's presumed that a book might harm you, Um, A speaker you don't like coming to your campus could harm you, even if you don't go and see his or her speech, even if you're just in the same vicinity. It might, you know, by osmosis, it might kind of damage your mind and and make you feel wounded. Pop songs are being banned in Britain uh, on campuses. 30 student unions in Britain have banned Robin Thicke's song Blurred Lines on the basis that it's damaging to uh, women um, Cambridge University recently banned a fancy dress party for "Around the World in 80 Days" because they <laughs> thought people wearing costumes from the past would be cultural appropriation and might be racially insensitive. Um, other student unions in Britain banned sexual noises. So when you're in the bar, for example, and you've had four or five pints of beer, and you might make a, 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 a you might bark or whistle or make some kind of ridiculous. Noise as 19 year old lads are wont to do, that is now censored on some campuses. So there's this extraordinary level of censorship which can be aimed almost at any idea or any expression or any form of behavior on the basis that everyone now deserves this kind of force field around them to protect them in a very therapeutic way from things that are presumed to be harmful to their mental health. That's the new kind of censorship we have in society at large, I think, but it's very, very pronounced on campus, this real new um, therapeutic censorship.
0: And what are the institutions in the UK that are fighting back against this? And and can you give us a bit of a context of what the state of the law is over there? Because most of our listeners are here in the United States. We have the First mm. Amendment. You do not. So what what no. are, what tools do you have to push back against these sorts of trends? We
1: we have very few little, very few legal tools to fight back against this kind of thing. As you say, we don't have the First Amendment, because, so we can't simply go into these, on, onto these campuses and, and legally assert the right of these various students to express themselves and to organize as they see fit. Um, you know, there are numerous laws in Britain which restrict freedom of speech in some way. Uh, there's the Public Order Act. There is the Racial and Re- Religious Hatred Act. Um, There's the Malicious Communications Act of 2003, which has been particularly interventionist in Internet freedom. And people have been imprisoned under the Malicious Communications Act for being grossly offensive. So in Britain, in the 21st century, you can be sent to jail for being grossly offensive. And we also, of course, have libel laws. We have the worst libel laws in Europe, which are hugely weighted in favor of the person who sues, which are so censorious and so unjust that they are used by Russian oligarchs, American celebrities. People from around the world come to London to sue the person who they think has defamed them. And that's why London is now referred to as a town called Sue. It attracts all these foreign claimants. So there are numerous pieces of legislation which restrict freedom of speech in a very real and quite terrifying way in Britain. Um, Let me just give you a few examples of things that have have happened. Um, You know, this is a country where you can be imprisoned for four months for singing an offensive song. This happened in Scotland last year. A man was walking to a football match. He was singing a song called the Billy Boys, which is an anti-Catholic song. Um, Scottish football is notoriously sectarian. There are Catholic teams and Protestant teams, and they wind each other up by singing songs and, and making certain chants. Um, He was singing this song. He was arrested. He was jailed for four months under Scotland's Offensive Behaviour at Football Act, which restricts what people can say, sing and chant and display at football matches. So this is a country where you can be jailed for singing in public. Um, That's how bad things have got. And and just uh, recently, in the past few days, in fact, The um, Director of Public Prosecutions here has issued new rules about what can and can't be said on the Internet, and she has said that people will be clamped down on very harshly if they are grossly offensive online, which can include using offensive hashtags on Twitter. You can now potentially be arrested for the hashtags you use on Twitter, and which can also include photoshopping an individual to make them look ridiculous in various different ways. So the the, the noose is tightening tightening around freedom of speech in British society at large, thanks to the law and thanks to what our politicians are pushing through. And I think my argument is that campus is merely a bizarre and in some cases more extreme expression of a, a censorship that actually gets the green light from officials themselves. So there are a huge number of problems in Britain in relation to free speech, and it can be difficult to challenge them because we don't have any constitutional guarantee of freedom of speech, which means you have to make the argument again and again on every single case that arises for freedom of speech and against censorship.
0: I recently watched a movie that came out here in the United States, I think two weeks ago. I don't think it's out on your side of the pond yet, but it's called Denial, and it's about uh, David Irving's libel trial with Deborah Lipstadt um, over her criticism of his Holocaust denial Mm. and one of the big themes of that movie not only is the trial but is also the unique and you know for us that are big free speech advocates backwards libel laws in the UK the idea that if someone charges you with libel you being the, the, the person who's criticizing that person has to prove that your statement was true whereas in the United States you know, it would be the the um, the burden would be placed on the person on the accuser of proving that what you said is wrong and that it was it was said maliciously and that it was damaging. There's there's a there's a couple of prongs in that test. Can you talk a little bit about that libel law? Because as you said, that you, you know the predecessor to spiked living Marxism uh, folded after a notorious libel case.
1: Yes, well, there, there were two pretty notorious libel cases in Britain in the 1990s. One. Was um, LM, which was sued by ITN, which is a media uh, corporation, because we criticised aspects of their coverage of the conflict in Bosnia. Um, I don't think you are allowed to go into too much detail about what we said because the matter has been deemed defamatory, and therefore uh, it it can be difficult to repeat what the article said. Um, and then the other one was the uh, David Irving Deborah Lipstadt trial, where David Irving sued Deborah Lipstadt. For what she had exposed in in relation to his outrageous and and racist Holocaust denial, which you know he, he shot himself in the foot by demonstrating as publicly as possible what a toe rag he really was. So those were the two notorious libel trials in Britain in the nineties, and they really both spoke to how, as you say, how backward England's libel laws are. I mean, they really are outrageous. the the key, The key thing is that. Uh, the defendant must prove his innocence. So it's a complete and utter um, warping of the ideal of justice, where you are actually presumed to be guilty until you can prove otherwise. The the libel laws are also notoriously weighted in favor because of that and other things. They are notoriously weighted in favor of the person who sues. So around 80 percent of libel trials go in favor of the person who's doing the suing, who tend to be very rich and influential people. It costs a lot of money to take a libel action. So it's a rich man's law, which is used to silence criticism and political views and difficult, awkward views that people don't like. There have, in recent years, there have been a few reforms to the libel law. A new defamation bill was introduced to try and make libel law more fair. And to a certain extent, they did. So, for example, it is now more difficult for foreign claimants to come to London and use our libel laws. They still can, but it's a bit more difficult for them to do that. Um, Also, um, people who sue now have have to prove that the article they're complaining about caused them substantial harm, whereas in the past they could simply assert that it caused them substantial harm. So there have been some useful reforms, which I don't think we should sniff at, But I think the problem is the very existence of the libel laws, which are underpinned by a a very deep and profound antagonism towards the idea of freedom of speech, towards the idea that even if someone says something about you which is really um, controversial and potentially even wrong, the best remedy to that is to demonstrate in the public realm that it's wrong and to use your own freedom of speech and to rally your friends around you to prove through more speech that that speech is bad and wrong and so on. So the libel laws have a presumption that punishment, um, extreme financial punishment, is the best way to deal with controversial speech. And I just think that's wrong from the very beginning. So our libel laws are outrageous. They've been made slightly less outrageous recently. But the fact that they still exist and the fact that they still have some unfairness in them is a really big problem here.
0: We've actually been having a conversation here in the United States around our libel laws, um, particularly surrounding the presidency the the presidential candidacy of Donald Trump, who said that he wants to open up libel laws in the United States, and in a number of instances, he's had his lawyers write letters to publications. Most recently, the New York Times, um, saying that he he would sue them um, for libel uh, based on their coverage. Most recently, as I said, at the New York Times for their coverage of um, alleged sexual assaults. So, not really a question, but it's also a discussion that's happening here in the United States, yeah. and perhaps an open an issue that's open. For uh, you know debate, although we do have the First Amendment that pushes back, it's very hard to win a libel case here in the United States; almost impossible.
1: Exactly, which is why America's attitude to free speech is, is so much better than ours. And um, yes, and I think that the way in which Trump is threatening libel against, his, uh, threatening to sue his critics for libel, really brilliantly exposes this idea that he's some kind of guardian of traditional American liberal values against the kind of PC mob that wants to destroy them. You know, it's such a nonsensical idea because he has demonstrated again and again that he is profoundly illiberal, um, has very profound authoritarian instincts, has no understanding whatsoever of what freedom of speech means or why it's important. And I think uh, both in in Britain, where the libel laws are terrible, and also in America where individuals like Trump can try their best to play that card, what we need to recognize is the chilling effect that libel has so in the in, in the english example it's not simply that some individuals are sued and and then punished after being found guilty of committing a libel it's that this has a knock-on chilling effect on society more broadly in terms of making journalists more cautious making publishers rethink whether they should publish that book or hold it back just in case people get sued for libel and, and lose money and lose their homes and all these other dramatic consequences. So libel is a good example of how censorship doesn't only punish the person who's being shut up or sent to jail or silenced in some way, but it always has that ripple effect of communicating to everyone else, you better not say this thing, you better not even think this thing, because you might be punished as well. So censorship always has that chilling effect across society which is one of the most dangerous things about it.
0: Have you as a public your editor in chief of Spiked, have you as a publisher ever had to consider uh, the libel law over there in considering publishing a piece? I mean is that a constant thing you're having to think about?
1: Yes, definitely. Well, certainly you know in the in the earlier days of Spiked um you know, because we came out of the experience of a libel trial, we probably were very cautious, and, you know, we were still controversial, we said what was on our mind, but, um, you know, there would come certain times when you'd read an article and you think, well, we better water it down a little bit, we better tone it down, and um, I have done that a few times as editor. I've said, look, I love this piece, it's absolutely right, and the guy you're talking about or the woman you're talking about is as bad as you have described, I completely agree with you, but why don't we tone it down a bit so we don't get any lawyers letters so um i have that conversation um you know fairly often and i know that other editors in britain do as well so it has a palpable impact on how people conceive of of the um the leeway they have to think freely and to write freely. So that's why my argument in, in relation to the libel laws here is not that we should reform them, but we really need to scrap them Mm -hmm. and, and think of a better way to correct or change um, speech that is in some way dangerous or problematic or wrong.
0: That's just inconceivable to me that that's a constant thing that you're having to worry about that strong Mm. criticism might result in a, in a lawsuit. I never lived overseas of course, but, um, You know, I guess it's something here in the United States we who work in the news industry or report on things or report on current events just take for granted. So in your – we were talking earlier about tools you have to push back against censorious trends on campus and off campus. In the United States, you know, we're seeing student-led drives for censorship. Often it was administrators on college campuses that we were fighting back against. Uh, But now we're seeing student-led drives towards censorship. One of the – You know, even if we're working at a private university, which do not benefit from First Amendment protections, um, there is still this general appreciation for free speech. I mean, you use the words free speech or you use the words First Amendment, and people are are automatically start off on their heels because no one wants to be seen as an opponent of free speech or as an opponent Mm -hmm. of First Amendment. Do you feel as though that argument, at least with regard to free speech, because there is no First Amendment overseas— um, puts your ideological opponents on their heels from the get-go, and then they're having to say, yes, I believe in free speech, but, or I believe in free speech, if.
1: Yes. Um, y- you know, we don't have the First Amendment, but we do have a political class that continually pays lip service to the idea of freedom of speech. So if you, if, if any politician, including Theresa May, uh, the Prime Minister, if any politician wants to say what they think is great about Britain or what what are the most important British values, they will always say, freedom of speech. Um, and then, in you know, a week down the line, they will introduce some new law which in some way limits freedom of speech. So there's a very contradictory process. But but you're right, what that means is that the idea of freedom of speech still has real purchase and real power. Um, it's not followed through in, in practice, and it's limited in some terrible, terrible ways. But it's st- most people still think that it is a good idea that people should be allowed to say what they think and other people should be allowed to hear that stuff it's just that they've lost faith in that ideal and so everything they do actually undermines their paying of lip service to it and i think um you know in some ways i think that the first amendment I, i'm often feel very i often feel very jealous of the first amendment in america but i also do think it, it can be a blessing and a curse it's a blessing because it's much easier, I think, for liberals in America to strike down censorship and or to prevent it from happening at all. But it can be a curse because it can con- kind of become a crutch, uh, a kind of legalistic crutch, where you um, it, sometimes campaigners, instead of having the argument out about why this form of censorship is really bad and why free speech is incredibly important, there can be a kind of reliance on the First Amendment to do that jo- job for you to a certain extent. So I do think there's a slightly um, contradictory process, even in relation to the First Amendment. And there can be something quite enlivening and exciting about having to have the argument for freedom of speech all the time, which is the situation that we have in Britain because we have no legal recourse, we have to simply argue it out in the public sphere with every instance of censorship, which can be quite a useful process sometimes. And there is a fight back in Britain against the new censorship. So there are I wrote a piece for The Spectator a few weeks ago about the the students who are now rising up against censorship on campus and who are passing motions that are unbanning newspapers so some student unions for example had banned tabloid newspapers on the basis that they were misogynistic Um, now there are groups of students who are challenging that who are forcing through new votes and are winning them and are winning the the freeing of these tabloid newspapers that are now available on campus and in other various other ways um, students are setting up what they call speak easy groups uh, free speech societies and they are inviting the people they're not supposed to be inviting, and having the conversations they're not supposed to be having. So there is a kickback, which is, I, I which I think is great and brilliant. But I do think that the the problem of the therapeutic censorship, the spread of this therapeutic censorship, both through the academy and through society, is very powerful, and is not going away anytime soon. So the kickback has to become stronger, more intellectually uh, uh, rooted. And needs to win more and more people to, its, um, to behind it.
0: I think you're exactly right when you talk about how the First Amendment in the United States is a blessing and a curse. Oftentimes when I'm interviewing interns or interviewing people here to work at FIRE, one of the questions that I ask is, you know, why do you believe free speech is important? Because mm-hmm. oftentimes I ask that question of people outside of FIRE and they say, well, because... have the First Amendment or because the First Amendment protects it, which is a very circular. (laughs) (laughs) There's a rotundness to that argument. Um, Yeah. So getting, you know, people aren't taught to think about those very um, basic liberal philosophical ideas underpinning the First Amendment. And uh, I'm actually reading a book right now by Stephen Solomon, who's going to be on the podcast, a future podcast uh, called Revolutionary Dissent, which talks about the revolutionary era in the United States and the dissent that was happening there that helped to frame at least the initial conceptions of the First Amendment, because there's this conception in the United States that's partly true, that the First Amendment didn't really come into being until the 20th century, but that First Amendment values were very much exercised during the revolutionary period. So it's a very uh, insightful remark on your part. But I realize we're running out of time here. Uh, I don't want to keep you too much longer. Just a few more questions, for short questions for you. Sure. You write about these issues a lot, and you write about a lot of other issues a lot. And you're sort of, I think it would be accurate, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, to describe your, to describe you as a bit of a contrarian in, in England. Uh, you know, as the, you might rebuke that in the same way that Christopher Hitchens did back in the mm. 2000s. Uh, but what has your been your experience speaking on these issues and writing on these issues on and off campus? Well, um, what sort of hate mail do you get?
1: <laughs> I get a lot of hate mail. Um, uh interesting hate mail uh, i've learned to kind of ignore it or, or live with it so it's all fine i don't i'm not going to sue anyone that's all good um i think i don't think of myself as a contrarian i have a, a, a real trouble with that brand um but my view is that what's happened in recent years is that the parameters of acceptable thought are shrinking all the time and what you're allowed to say and what you're allowed to think and and how you're allowed to express yourself is becoming narrower all the time because of the PC culture or the politics of victimhood or however you want to describe it. There are various things bearing down on freedom of speech, which means those parameters are shrinking. And so what happens is that anyone with a strong view or even an extreme view or a a very clear political outlook on life tends to find him or herself outside of the parameters of acceptable thought, not because they have changed what they say or that they say things just to wind people up or they're being annoying and contrarian, but because those parameters have shrunk and shrunk and just flown past them. And suddenly someone who was relatively mainstream 20 or 30 years ago is now a crazy extremist and everyone wonders why he says these things. I think that's the process that's taken place. And um, I think my experience in terms of speaking... On campus uh, in particular is a very interesting one because on the one hand you do get a lot of hatred. Um, when I spoke at the Oxford Union a couple of years ago there was a protest outside, there was a candle lit vigil for all the trans people who I had harmed. And, of course, what that means is that I've written some articles criticizing the politics of transgenderism and and raising questions about the way in which it's enforced and the very censorious way in which it's protected from criticism. And then that leads to this candlelit vigil for all the victims of my articles. I mean, completely surreal. So I've encountered things like that. But then at the same time, it can be a joy because you meet all these students who are very interested in freedom of speech, who, who very interestingly often can't work out if they're right wing or left wing, and they, they're they slightly confused, uh, but they have this very strong in, instinct in favor of freedom of speech, in favor of trusting people to work out for themselves what is right or wrong, in favor of open public debate. And they don't have much um, purchase in public life. They don't have much of a platform like unlike uh, the the pc brigade which has a very large platform they don't have a platform to express themselves so when you meet them it can be a really nice experience and you give them advice and you tell them you know maybe set up a society or do this or or write articles or make your voice heard so it's good to connect with those students and it reminds you of, of, of a very important thing which is that not all students have fallen into this trap
0: yeah that is important to remember We're, we see um, increasingly, a number of these unions or groups on American college campuses, students, students for free expression groups, um, you know, some of them on in, in particular comes to mind. One at Brown is underground because it can't be above ground. Otherwise, you know, right. get those same sorts of candlelight vigils and protests. Yeah, uh, we're, we're trying to, you know, in the United States, encourage colleges and universities to adopt what are called the Chicago statements. They wrote a very eloquent defense of yeah. free and open Um, academic inquiry, um, and a number of colleges have adopted that as well. So I want to end this by asking you two questions that I ask most guests. Um, If you had to pick a favorite book in defense of free speech, or free press, or academic freedom, um, and recommend it to others, what would that book be? Or would that treatise be? It doesn't need to be a book.
1: Um, I think uh, more recent ones, I would go for um, The Kindly Inquisitor's by Jonathan Rao. Yeah, we interviewed
0: him on this show, yeah. Uh,
1: and Trigger Warning, which is a book by my friend Mick Hume, um, so I will declare an interest in that one, which was published last year. Um, and the reason I'd go for those two books is because what they do very successfully is both describe the new censorship and the, uh, uh, the kind of post-1990 censorship, really, which, you know, you can refer to as therapeutic censorship or and various other things. They describe that new process very well, while also referencing and discussing the historical arguments for censorship, how they've changed, and also the historical arguments for freedom of speech. Um, so they capture that stuff really, really well. And I think the key th- one of the key things to draw out of this discussion, both from reading books like that, but also from engaging with students and others, is precisely that thing you raised earlier, which is how do you make the case for freedom of speech these days? Or how do you convince people uh, at a time when censorship is second nature to too many people in in campus and elsewhere. How do you make the case for freedom of speech? And I think one of the historical figures I fall back in in, in relation to that is um, George Bernard Shaw, who made some great arguments against censorship because one of his plays was censored and in favor of freedom of speech. And he has this great line in one of his pro-freedom of speech essays, which is that all great truths begin as blasphemies. And it's always worth rem- remembering that and reminding yourself of that, that all the things that uh, w- w- that we now take for granted, like, for example, women's right to vote, gay rights, black people not being slaves, whatever else it is, all these wonderful things that we think are perfectly natural, were at some point extremely controversial. They were blasphemies. They were seen as bad ideas and things you should not argue for in public. So it's always worth uh, reminding oneself that the things that we now consider to be great truths, whether they are scientific truths or political truths or social truths, were once blasphemies. And that's I think, is the key argument for freedom of speech, that it's only through allowing people to openly express themselves and to potentially be offensive in the process that you can really work out what's true, what's right, and what's good. And that's why freedom of speech, I think, is incredibly important. So there are a number of historical figures who make that argument very well in their essays and books. One, I think, who is often overlooked in the freedom of speech discussion is uh, George Bernard Shaw.
0: And that was actually my second question. It was like, do you have a free speech hero? So in this case, would it be George Bernard Shaw?
1: I think it would be George Bernard Shaw. um, Also, Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine was a great warrior for freedom of speech and, in in my view, uh, the greatest figure in modern history. Um, you know, pr- primarily, even though he came from England, primarily for his impact on American politics and also on French politics. Um, so I would say George Bernard um, Thomas Paine, and George Orwell as well. George Orwell made some great arguments in favour of press freedom, and he made this one key argument, which I think is incredibly important today where he argued that, you know, yes, there are censors who want to clamp down on press freedom. There are, um, uh, you know, oligarchs who own the press who don't want it to say certain things. We know all these things. But he said the most important problem is that the intellectual classes have abandoned the argument for press freedom and abandoned the argument for liberty. And that acts as a green light to all those people we're very familiar with, all those evil senses we know about, it acts as a green light for them to clamp down harder on things they don't like. And I think that's exactly the problem we have today, is liberal complacency, is that the so-called intellectual classes or or the liberal elite or however we want to describe them, they have abandoned the argument for freedom of speech. They have vacated the moral battlefield and as a consequence, all these new forms of censorship can emerge and take hold and have a really profoundly damaging impact on public discussion. So I think the intellectual classes which we may, we may perceive ourselves to be part of or we may not, I don't know, we need to get our act together and make a, a far stronger, far more convincing argument for why freedom of speech is the most important value in a democratic society.
0: Well, Brendan O'Neill, I think that's a good point to end on. Um, do you have anything else you want to add before we go?
1: No, that
0: will sound good. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks, Nico. That was Spiked editor Brendan O'Neill. You can check out Spiked and Brendan's writings at spiked-online.com. Again, spiked-online.com. They also have a podcast called the Spiked Podcast. Again, the Spiked Podcast. Uh, that you can subscribe to on iTunes. If you've enjoyed this podcast, however, and this episode in particular, please consider rating us and posting a review at iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Before we sign off here, I should mention that this week is Free Speech Week. It's an annual event, if you haven't heard of it, uh, where each year a bunch of free speech organizations or not free speech organizations uh, coordinate with each other to put together programming about free speech issues. If you go to FIRE's website, thefire.org, you can see what we have going on. And if you go to freespeechweek.org, you can take a look at all the partner organizations and see what they're doing to celebrate this oh-so-important week. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese and Chris Maltby. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so2speakpodcast. You can also email us feedback at so2speak at thefire.org, or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. Again, that's 215-315-0100. Until next time,
1: have a happy free speech week, and thanks for listening.